Our Old Testament reading is in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, which is on page 46 in the Bibles we provide. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of our Lord. Our New Testament reading is in John chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, 17 to 21, and 32 to 37. And we will start on page 8, 9 to 7 in the Bibles we provide. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And verse 32... Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the gospel of Christ. Good morning, everybody. It's very good to be with you. Uh, I want to thank the session for the opportunity to be here. Uh, It's a great honor. I want to thank Piers for his recommendation for me to be here. Uh, It has been a great opportunity for me to get to know Piers over the last few years and make his friendship and see the world through his eyes and even through the lens of his camera. 
Uh, it's been fun to see his pictures even around the building. And I realized after the first service that I should have explained why it is that a senior pastor of a church in Brooklyn is able to be here Palm Sunday and Easter. <laughs> because a lot of people ask me, and that's a very good question. Uh, it is this. So I, I am the founding and senior pastor of Resurrection Brooklyn. It is, uh, it, it is grown into a network of five churches. Each of those congregations has a unique pastoral staff. And I, uh, I participate with my family in one of those. I, I founded that one, but handed it off to one of my associate pastors a couple of years ago. And now I oversee the network of churches and uh, rotate around and preach at the various congregations uh, you know, a few times, a, a few weeks every month. But those, each congregation has its own pastoral staff, and I can promise you that those pastors are going to be preaching in their congregations on Palm Sunday and Easter. Um, so when, when Piers contacted me, I, I said, that'd be great. I would love to be able to come down. And uh, so it's fun to be here. It's fun to be back in Knoxville. Knoxville is uh, dear to my family and to me because back in 2006, uh, we came down and stayed here for a week before driving over to Asheville and picking up our adopted son. He was 10 days old over there. And so we stayed here for the week in anticipation, staying with friends, Josh and Robin Eby, who were living here at the time and pastoring nearby. Uh, and so it'll be great. Next week, my, you'll get to meet our adopted son, Walker, who's now 13. And, uh, and he and the rest of my family will be here with me next Sunday. So that's great. And I'm also glad to be here and look with you at this great story, the story of Lazarus. It's a very common story. It's, uh, uh, it's well known to us and to the church uh, throughout history for good reason, because it teaches us a lot about the Christian faith. It teaches us a lot about Jesus. And it's an appropriate, uh, it's an appropriate passage for us to look at even today on Palm Sunday. It's not meant to be a buzzkill to look at the death of Lazarus. Um, because this is a day in which we think about death. Even though Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, to great shouts of praise, we all know how the week ends up. It ends up in the darkness of Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Uh, so next week, we're going to look at this passage again, and we're going to focus a little more attention on what it means when Jesus raises Lazarus and declares that he himself is the resurrection and the life. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in here for a few minutes. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have already said thank you to you for these words because they are words of life to us. Uh, we desperately need them. Your Holy Spirit uh, penned these words uh, with John two millennia ago, uh, and they have been instructing and empowering your church ever since. And so we ask that by your same Spirit uh, that you would lead us into all truth even today, that you would be transforming us to be the people that you long for us to be in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I've been looking forward to April for quite a while. Uh, I've been looking forward to April because I get to be with you. This is great. Uh, I get to come down this week. I rode the tail of the dragon on the way over here, something I've been wanting to do. So that's been, that was really fun. Um, I've been looking forward to April because New York stinks in the winter. And it finally starts to warm up in April. And it's awesome. Um, and I've been looking forward to April. Uh, I have to say this because I'm a preacher. I've been looking forward to April because of Easter season. Yep, that's great. Palm Sunday, Easter season, moving out of Lent. That's good. All true. But what I really look forward to in April is happening on April 26th, the next Avengers movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. 
See, I knew you would track with me. And I'm looking forward to Endgames because in the last Avengers movie, most of my favorite characters got killed. But I know, I know that they're going to be back because the actors have signed contracts with Marvel for a number of movies coming up. And, and so then the question is, how are they coming back? And if you go on the internet, if you're a geek, which you might be like me, and you go on the internet and you try to anticipate what the storyline might be in the next movie, you understand that there's going to be some quantum leaping or time travel or something that is going to allow all these awesome characters to come back into our lives for a few more summers. And so that's fun. Now, I, am, I don't work for Marvel. This is not a guerrilla ad campaign. Um, and I find these things interesting because this conceit of time travel is very, very popular in, TVs, uh, in TV shows and movies. You can think about, there's a long list. I mean, I just, I just wrote down just a few, right? Source code, butterfly effect, Terminator, Back to the Future, Outlanders, Deadpool 2, goes on and on. By the way, parents, that's not a list of recommended movies <laughs> for you to watch with your children. Some of those are entirely inappropriate. Um, I, I just list those because th this is a popular conceit. It's a popular genre. And I think it's popular because it taps into something that is deeply human in all of us. Because we all live with grief and sorrow in some way and regret. And we want to go back and we want to fix things. And so these movies tap into that. Because we are people who are full of grief. We grieve missed opportunities. If only I'd studied harder. If only I'd practiced piano like my parents told me. If only I bought Google stock 15 years ago. If only I'd married the guy who really loved me. We grieve the, we grieve the harm that we've done to others. If I hadn't said that to her, we'd still be friends. I wish I could be more generous but I have too much debt. I probably should have spent more time with my kids. We grieve our losses. I wish we could have had children of our own. If my mom were still alive, she'd know what to do. I hope my dad knew I loved him. You see, we all live with heartache and wish we could turn back the clock and fix things. But we can't. And so we often get angry at ourselves, maybe at others, and sometimes even at God. Where were you, Lord? Where were you when I lost my job? Where were you when my husband died? Where were you when my child failed out of school? Where were you when my parents divorced? Where were you when my own marriage dissolved? Where were you? If you've ever uttered these words, or even harbored them in your heart, then you are in good company. And this passage is for you. John recorded this story for you. Because here on Palm Sunday and in this passage, we celebrate a king who is touched by our grief and wipes away our tears. So let's look again at the passage. First, Jesus is touched by our grief by the time Jesus finally arrives outside Bethany, his friend Lazarus has been dead four days. And in that time, it's easy to imagine Mary and Martha desperate for Jesus coming, watching for his arrival. 
When will Jesus get here? What is taking him so long? And eventually their anxiety turned to anger. And when Jesus arrives, it spills from Martha's lips. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary says the same thing. Lord, if only you had been here. But notice, Jesus doesn't defend himself. He doesn't grow indignant. Instead, the passage says that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. His soul was stirred up within him. And then in verse 35, one of the most touching verses in all of Scripture, Jesus wept. Now, I grew up in church, and every kid in Sunday school knew John 11.35 because it's the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Some cool little factoid, and you can memorize it in three seconds. Jesus wept. We knew it, but it never made sense. Why is Jesus crying? Why is he crying? He knows everything, and he's just going to raise Lazarus from the dead anyway. But since then, I've come to understand the importance of these two words, that rarely does so much theology get so purely distilled for us. Why are these words so significant? Because they actually teach us about the heart of God. John's gospel, John goes out of his way throughout his gospel to show us that Jesus and the Father are one and the same. They are one God. And if you want to understand who God is, then you can look at Jesus. And so when Jesus here in this passage weeps, we know that God weeps. We know that God is touched by our sorrows. And this was an important message in that day and age especially, but also in ours. Because John was writing to the Greeks for whom the idea of God weeping would have been scandalous. They believed that if God was eternal, by definition, he could not feel love or anger, pain, sorrow, hope, or any other passions. But the Bible gives us a radically different picture of God. God is not cold and distant and dispassionate. You heard that in the first, in the first scripture lesson that was read to you. From the book of Exodus, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. See, Jesus wept, and he revealed a God who enters into the anguish of his people, and he grieves with them in their suffering. He faces the pain and the effects of sin in our fallen world, and he cries. See, the God of the universe hears our cries. He is genuinely touched by our grief. And that means we should never fear pouring out our hearts to God. And if you are one who thinks that God is not listening, that you have been ignored, 
that maybe the pain in your life is a result of God's punishment. Somehow you deserve it. Or that God doesn't care, that he's not listening. Then this passage is for you. Because God listens when we pray. Even when we are angry. So friends, you can pour your hearts out to the Lord and he will hear you. He is attentive to your cries. This is what we learn in this passage here. But we learn a little bit more than that because this also gives us a picture of what it means for us to be for one another in community because everyone grieves. And yet we are so ourselves so often uncomfortable entering into one another's grief. I know I am. After 22 years of marriage, when my wife Deb is sad or grieving, my first inclination is to help her get over it. Any of you guys with me on this? You know, it's not that bad. You could look at it a different way. Or you know what? Why don't we just go out for dinner? Let's watch some Netflix or something so we don't actually have to think about this. But this says far more about me than it says about my wife. It says that I really don't want to get involved in all the mess. I don't want to get involved in the grieving and the sorrow and the pain. I just want to watch baseball. But this is not the husband who loves his church. The husband of the church enters into her pain. And if you ever want to know who that husband is, you can't just listen to sermons about him. You can't just read books about him. You actually have to get involved in the life of the congregations. You have to get involved in his church and understand the grief that other people have, the sorrow that affects their lives so that you can see how Jesus ministers to them, maybe even through you. So if you're here investigating the Christian faith today, you're trying to check it out, I want to tell you that you must do so in the context of community. You must be involved in the church. You must get to know the people who are here, know their stories, rub shoulders with them, get to know them because in knowing them, you will know what grieves them. You will know what their sorrows are and you will see how Jesus is at work in their lives. That's how you're going to get to know them. Because when you get to know who Jesus is, you're going to know that Jesus enters into our sorrows and griefs. But you're going to learn something else about him. You're going to learn that Jesus actually wipes away our tears. So it would be a mistake to read this passage and see and conclude that Jesus is simply crying because of his affection for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That's what the crowds assume in verse 36. And those things are undoubtedly true, but they actually don't make much sense of the story. See, John says that Lazarus has been dead four days by the time Jesus arrives in Bethany. But Jesus wasn't that far away. The passage tells us that Jesus was two days away. 
So Jesus got word from Mary and Martha, and then he hangs out for another two days. Now, some of you may remember the episode of Seinfeld where Elaine's boyfriend gets hit by a car and he's in the hospital and she gets word. And on the way to the hospital, she stops and buys juji fruits. And when she arrives at the, hotel, at, the, at the hospital room, she's eating the juji fruits and he immediately realizes that she didn't run right to the hospital. And he's furious with her. And he should have been. But this is way worse. This is infinitely worse. This is Jesus hanging out for two more days with his disciples. Six more meals before he even thinks of getting on the road. Why? Well, the passage tells us that Jesus may be glorified, it says. And that makes sense, right? To a degree. If Jesus has the power to heal the sick and raise the dead, he wants people to believe in him. And it makes sense to wait until Lazarus is dead and decomposing for a few days before raising him, right? That way nobody can be confused. And the story doesn't come out later that, you know, Lazarus was in a coma or was just sleeping or something. And Jesus came along and woke him up. Because then he wouldn't be glorified really, right? Okay, so that makes some sense. Um, people would be amazed and they might follow Jesus. But back to the Sunday school question. If that was Jesus' plan all along, then why is he crying? You expect him to be a little bit more smug, right? Like, I know what's going to happen here. But what I want you to understand is that Jesus cried because he actually knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew that raising Lazarus from the dead would bring him glory. People would understand it. But that was not going to be the ultimate glory for which he was pursuing. That's not where this story leads. Because Lazarus was going to die again. And Jesus had come to defeat sin and death once and for all. And so the raising of Lazarus was just going to be a sign of things to come. And Jesus understood what was to come. And it brought him great sorrow. It troubled his soul. And if you are here on Good Friday, you will probably once again hear about the trouble of Jesus' soul. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing his own death, praying that the Father would take the cup of suffering away from him, Jesus, again, is full of sorrow and grief. His soul is full of anguish because he knows what is to come. But what was to come was his moment of glory. That's what John 12 says. Jesus tells his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, this was Jesus' moment of glory. This was the glory to which it all was moving. And Jesus was sorrowful because he knew that it meant his own death. And that if he wanted to enter into the sorrow and pain and grief of this world, that it was going to cost him his life. 
That's what it meant to be the king. You see, this brings us back to all those time travel movies. The impulse is right. Our lives are full of grief and sorrow. There is good reason for all of us to weep. And so often we wish we could go back and fix things. And we think about everything we would do differently. But this passage reminds us that we cannot go back. We cannot go back and change things. We cannot go back and change our destiny. But we don't need to. Because Jesus has already done it. And that whatever pain and sorrow and grief exists in our lives right now, Jesus is and will take them away. That's what the story of Lazarus is pointing ahead to. And this is the foundation of our hope as Christians, and it is the vision for how we live even now as the followers of Christ. Because Jesus is touched by our grief and wipes away our tears, his people, his church, is called to do the same. And I know that you already believe this. Because Cedar Springs, you have been doing this for a long time. You have been faithfully entering into the suffering and sorrow of this world. In just the few days that I've been here, I have heard about a number of examples. Knoxville Rescue Mission, Hope House, you partnered with Bethany Adoption Services, the Buddy Blast that we already heard about, partnering with churches around the world that are serving the poor, the marginal, immigrants. You are loving widows and orphans. This is what it means to be the body of Jesus, to enter into the suffering of the world and to wipe away the tears. That is your calling as a church. And you have been faithful in that calling for many, many years. But you are doing this in the power of Jesus. And it is Jesus who sustains you. And it is Jesus who will continue to sustain you because Jesus' vision is that this work is not done. It has just begun. And we are called to be faithful in it because we know how the story ends. Listen to what Revelation says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is what Jesus was anticipating. That's what he's looking forward to. This is what we are anticipating and looking forward to. This is what the world longs for. And friends, come back next week because you're going to hear how it's guaranteed for us. Because this is not just a future vision. 
This is rooted in historical fact. That the one who raised Lazarus from the dead himself walked out of the grave. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. So come next week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.